1 Peter chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Though the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God bless to us the reading and understanding of his holy word. There are hard lessons sometimes to learn in life. And I'll confess that one of the hardest lessons that I've ever had to learn in life is it's not about me. I joke with people, you know, that, that God gave me a, a half portion of hair and a double portion of selfishness. And I could blame it on the culture that I was raised in, you might say, which really a lot in our society and a lot in our culture really does try to convince you everything that happens in life is about you. Now, when I was in high school, it's kind of interesting to me because now it's coming back around to it. The motto of the army was, be all you can be like they're doing it for you. And remember, 
McDonald's was the one that with their very, very good marketing jingle convinced us you deserve a break today. And those are just a couple of examples, socially, marketing-wise, that we were getting this imprint that, yeah, it's about me. And politically, we were being told this as well. And socially, that was the era of really rights, abortion rights. It's my body, don't you touch it. I have the right to do what I want. And today we're seeing that exemplified and just grown into the transgender rights, the the LGBTQ, RSTUV, WXYZ rights, whatever initials they are adding now. Everything in our culture screaming that it's about you. And if you're not careful, you'll buy into it and start to believe it. And you know, a lot of the Christian church even buys in to a lot of this thinking. And I try not to throw too many rocks or stones because, you know, the old saying, if you point a finger somewhere, three more are pointing back at you. But even in our evangelical Christian world, How much has the gospel gone forth to try to bring people in that it's about you because God loves you? True, but is it about God's love or is it about you? And many churches have made it seem that the gospel comes and is presented to make your life better. It was really uh, too late in life, but a lot of my experiences in the military told me over and over and over and over again, it's not about me. And the longer you start to see God's providence at work and God's sovereignty involved in the nations and in your life, the more that comes to bear. But I'll suggest to you that it's not only true that it's not about you, but when we stop and understand, it's actually very liberating that it's not about us. And so what is it? You know, we have the, the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? It's a good answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I'll suggest to you that this passage this morning really echoes that, but amplifies it a little bit. And so I'm going to kind of give it away to you early, okay? And it's found in verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That should be our mantra. 
as God's people, as his church. That we, in our purpose, are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I don't want to spend too much time, but I do want to kind of catch us up. This is my third time, first time end of May, last time end of June, and now here the end of July. And it was kind of a three-part overview that I wanted to give of salvation. So I do want to catch us up just a little bit and how I think the apostle here has, has kind of uh, put us together here and packaged this a little bit as far as with an overall thought of salvation. And in the first 12 verses, and, and I have to admit, um, I've sometimes re, in, retitled that many times. You could call it the wonder of salvation. You could call it the awe of salvation. You could call it the magnificence of salvation, the beauty of salvation. You put whatever adjective works in there for you. But the, the, but the apostle Peter, in those first 12 verses, just just impresses us with how magnificent and wonderful salvation is. It's a living hope that's been given to us. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. And then at the end of that passage, it says, you know, this salvation that has come to us through Jesus Christ, even the angels long to look into it. And it gives us almost a cosmic uh, picture that this is the greatest thing in the universe that has come to us as sinners through his mercy and through his grace. And it's something we, we just have to marvel at. We, we really, in our humanness, minds can't really fully grasp and understand the God of the universe providing to us a salvation so great. And then last month when I was here, we looked at the latter half of chapter 1. Because salvation doesn't just come to us And it's not something we just take and like have it on a mantle that we can walk by and say, boy, that's great. I remember when God saved me. That was just wonderful. And it is, and it's good to reflect and understand how God comes to us. But God's gospel comes to us to transform us. And in that second half of of Peter, we talked about how the gospel is pushed into our lives and and, and I gave three, three props on a propeller that propel us forward. Because in that, and, I, and I titled that sermon, The Calling of Salvation. So first we had the wonder of salvation, then we had the calling of salvation. And that we are called to be obedient. We are called to be holy. And we are called to love one another earnestly. And that's where, if you just take those two, and many could just take that, and if you just had that as a picture of salvation, you could almost come to think, it's about me. It's about what I receive, 
and it's about what the gospel is doing in my life. But that's why I'm suggesting this really covers the intent of salvation. Yes, it comes to you individually. It comes to you personally. But it comes that we who receive it personally, collectively, know how to proclaim the excellencies of him who has taken us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. And so I love the little bit of a a phrase there he uses there in the first couple of verses there. And I always love it. The Apostle Paul does this too. And I think we lose sight of this sometimes. So, So he says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Those are all pretty bad things. He's writing to the church. And, and a, a lot of times we like to think, whoa, those are the bad people he's talking about. No, he's talking to us. That's us the gospel has come to. Uh, but he also uses this, this analogy of in, newborn infants longing uh, for, for spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. Now, physically, it's a natural thing to grow up, correct? If we see someone who doesn't physically mature grow, then then we go to the doctor and say, Doc, what's going on? This is not natural. This is not right. The Apostle Peter's giving us a spiritual analogy. We've been given salvation. We've received salvation. We've received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. The Apostle Peter, it's not as obvious. We don't just see it. We can't recognize it that well, but he's saying, grow up in salvation. That's the natural thing that should be occurring in our lives. We should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how does he then follow it up with growing into salvation, we understand we are a part of the greater picture. And that this picture is about Jesus Christ, the living stone. So, most of us are familiar with the, the picture and the imagery of a cornerstone. It is the first stone that's set for a foundation, typically of a, a large structure. It determines the placement of where the other stones are going to go. It implies, again, that a house or a building of some structure is being built. And what he's telling us here is the structure that's being built is the church. And so then he describes Jesus, the cornerstone, and then he gives a description of us. 
And you can also relate in here a lot of Paul's. In Paul's uh, epistles and his writings, you will very frequently come across the phrase being in him. You might almost call it, uh, Ken Smith used to call it the in him principle. For those of you who knew uh, Ken Smith, beloved uh, pastor uh, in our denomination. The in him principle, what does it mean that we are in him? That we grow in him? In chapter 1, we were told we have a living hope. Here we're told that Jesus Christ is the living cornerstone and we are living stones upon it and that we become a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are not individual things. These are collective things. This is what it means to grow up in our salvation. That we understand that we are connected to one another. There's reason we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a reason it goes on at length that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, but we are all one. In Christ, built upon the cornerstone. One time I, I had the opportunity to, to get a little lesson in um, stained glass windows. Another form of art that I greatly appreciate, and, and really both of them kind of work here, is um, mosaics. I loved it when I did some travel in the Middle East, and I lived in Cyprus, and, and some of the mosaics. But you stop and think about what these two types of art really are. And, and, and I'll go with the, the stained glass first. Really, it's just a punt, bunch of different colored broken shards of glass. That in the right hands and in, in the right vision, an artist can take all of these broken shards of glass, can perhaps refine them, take off the rough edges, maybe melt them down a little bit, and then form them together into a work of art. And, and uh, I'm not a fan of a lot of them in churches. Just disclaimer there. <laughs> but I am a fan of kind of the, the, the thought behind the art. Same thing with the mosaic. What is a mosaic? A bunch of little rocks with different shades of color. But in the mind and in the craftsmanship and work of an artist, he puts all of these little different pieces of rocks together and you stand back and you see a picture. 
We are those stones. We are those shards of broken glass. We are those little pebbles that by ourselves are nothing. Now, we may get a little defensive. Well, I like my color of glass. I like my broken edge. And we have that tendency to do that because we like to to rationalize why we do what we do and we like to justify what we do. But until we're in the hands of the craftsman, putting us together, creating the picture, we are nothing. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. Individually, salvation comes to us, and it is amazing. But if we grow up into our salvation, we understand we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. We are a picture of what God is doing in history. And we have examples of this. And it becomes clear when we start to see the whole scope of Scripture. God came to Abraham in Genesis 15. And he said, he brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God told Abram he was going to make him a mighty nation. And it wasn't about Abraham. It was about what God was accomplishing and how. We read earlier about Moses in, in Exodus and, and even earlier there in Exodus 5, 6, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It wasn't about ten plagues. It wasn't about miracles. It wasn't about Moses. It was about God redeeming and claiming his people. And we see it even further on in Jeremiah. God says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Ezekiel says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. 
and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. It wasn't about Jeremiah. It wasn't about Ezekiel. And we could go to Isaiah. We could go to the New Testament about Paul and John and Peter. They knew all too well. It was not about them. Even to the end, Revelation 21.3, where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them with them as their God. This is our blessed hope. That we will see him face to face, collectively singing of his his excellencies. It was mentioned in our call to worship that the psalmist was beset perhaps by many things, but he said, the Lord is my salvation, therefore what will I fear? So the perspective was given. And I'll beat another horse that I haven't beat yet. I should appreciate this, because the last two times I was here, I beat it pretty good. But notice how, what he says here, and I love this. Beloved, I urge you as Sojourners and exiles. Particularly in May when I was here, because that's how the Apostle Peter starts off his book. He is writing to the elect exiles. So this idea of perspective, it's not about what we can accumulate here. It's not always what we can accomplish uh, Here, our purpose is to understand God's greater purpose. That he is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. And that we are living stones. What? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, we have that irony. Just as there was the irony when Christ was before Pilate, and they have this little discussion about Jesus being a king. Here you have somebody who looks so unlike a king. Pilate says, hey, they're bringing you here because you're the king of the Jews. The irony certainly wasn't lost on Pilate. But Jesus said, it's as you say. Which I'm sure puzzled Pilate greatly. 
But he is our king. And he is our head of the church. So brothers and sisters, should that not be our perspective as well? And that when he uses this language, a chosen race, not a chosen person, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, not a royal priest, we have our high priest, a holy nation. A people for his own possession. So here we are, exiles, homeless, without status. Yet, in reality, given an amazing position because of the cornerstone, the living stone, Jesus Christ. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are in him, built upon him, These are not just things we're trying to attain to. These are what Christ has accomplished in us. So how are we to live? Centered upon salvation. Understanding the wonder of it understanding the calling of it, understanding the purpose of it. That it's not about you or me, and that's a very good thing. But it is about the Lord Jesus Christ and the church that he is building because he is coming again to claim his people proclaiming his excellencies. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came as a humble man to live a humble life, to die on a criminal's cross. And yet, because he is the Holy One of Israel, and because he rose again on the third day, and because he does reign, We thank you for the salvation 
he has wrought for sinners such as us. So, Lord, while we have this breath on this earth, may we understand what this salvation that he has given to us means. May we have the perspective that we are exiles on this earth and that while we have breath, we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's turn in our Psalters, please, to Psalm 118, the E selection. Stands in 19, verse 12 there says, Now open wide the gates for me, the gates of righteousness, and I will enter in through them with thanks, the Lord I'll bless. The last stanza, You are my God, I'll give you thanks. My God, I'll give you praise. Oh, thank the Lord, for he is good. His love lasts endless days. Let's stand as we sing.